Welcome to Episode 7 of In the Arena, the Jonathan Mosen Story. I'm Glenn Gordon. I think it might make sense to jump ahead to Mushroom FM, even though it doesn't fit chronologically with some of the other things you've done, just because we're on this this radio theme. Hmm. Did you go dark radio-wise for a while after leaving ACB? Very briefly, and then Mark Mulcahy was running a radio station called Big Planet Radio, and he convinced me to do the Mosin Explosion there. Eventually, that uh, folded, and by that stage, I had moved to Christchurch working for Pulse Data International, or Humanware, and uh, had set up a low-power FM station there called The Wave, because we lived in a seaside suburb called New Brighton, and it had a big, massive FM mast out there. We were really getting a good signal out. Ah, good morning to you. It's The Wave on 88.4. Also on the web at www.thewave.co.nz, wherever you are, whatever time it is, it's the breakfast show, and that's what counts. Dave McCartney and the Pink Flamingos got us underway, by the way, good New Zealand song, that, and the Pink Flamingo song. Well, we're here for the next three hours, and we're here from six to nine in the morning, every weekday morning with the Mosin Explosion Breakfast Show. Nice to have you along. Man, it has been chilly over the weekend, hasn't it? We've had lows of minus four degrees or minus three, forecasting a pretty drizzly kind of day. We'll check the weather for you once again at about half past six in case you're just coming to. We've got lots of good music on the way, getting underway with a classic from Procore Harem as the Explosion Breakfast Show begins. We streamed the wave online and I broadcast the Mosin Explosion from there. When Amanda and I split up in 2005, I took a brief break and then we were back with the Mosin Explosion until 2006. I had become acquainted with Bruce Taves, who has suffered with me on various internet radio projects. He, I think, first did a thing called Radio Classics back in the day. And he had moved to an internet radio station run by a guy called Ken Scott, Shell World Radio. There was obviously no more wave anymore because I wasn't living in New Brighton. And when we brought the Mosin Explosion back, Bruce made the introduction for me and Shell World Radio agreed to carry it. And it was kind of a, a pretty significant time, one of those real jittery, nervous times for me, starting up the Mosin Explosion again, given all the publicity that had surrounded my marriage breakup and doing that first show was nerve-wracking. All right. Before we get into the uh, the uh, show proper, I uh, I would like to say thank you to lots of people. Um, I would like to say uh, quite a few other things to a small minority of people, but I would like to say thank you to the many people who have been uh, so supportive and sending messages, many of whom, um, well, a number of whom I, I wouldn't have expected to receive such supportive messages from, including competitors of ours in the technology industry. Um, regarding the personal upheaval in my life, it has been a difficult time, and I really do appreciate the support. You really get to know who your friends are, who you can count on uh, in times of turmoil and change. Um, for all of you who have um, encouraged me here, uh, a big thank you, and this song is especially for those special people. I pick myself up, dust myself off, start all over again. 
I was on Shell World Radio until the middle of 2006 when I was moving. And then I did go dark. I took about a two and a half year break. And in 2009, I came back on with the Mosin Explosion on The Legend, which is a station that's still going that Bill Sparks operates. Actually, I think I have Bruce Taves to thank for that yet again, because he was doing Taves on the Waves. He originally did a thing called Taves on the Wave. You see, that's how that show originally got its name. And he'd moved Taves on the Waves, understandably. He wanted to keep it going. So he added an S on the end to Taves on the Wave when the Wave stopped broadcasting. And he was moving around. Uh, Taves on the Waves at that stage was on the legend. And so when I kind of got the radio bug again, again, I said to him, what's it like broadcasting on the legend, Bruce? And he said, it's great. So I made the approach there. The Legend is a great station. Uh, there, there, were, there was one person in particular who a number of us just found quite difficult to work with. And one day there was a series of emails in um, April 2010 that just made me think, you know, I'm volunteering to do this and I shouldn't have to kind of cope with this stuff. So I just let Bill know that, look, I think I would be happier if I set up my own server and ran the Mosin Explosion on there, just sort of popped on once a week, did my show, and didn't have to worry with all the busy work I had to do and everything about all the argy-bargy. Well, that was fine. Well, yeah, Bill was regretful about it, but uh, I was getting ready. I got the server set up and everything, and then all of a sudden I started getting these emails from some other people who were with the legend saying, can we come too? I was very reluctant to do this because... I didn't really want to sabotage the legend. That was never what it was about. It was just about me having some peace and doing it the way I wanted to do it. But before the end of that week, we had a whole bunch of uh, people who wanted to be on the server with me. And I realized we had a radio station. So I had to come to terms with that and think, oh, hello, radio station that I didn't expect to have. The first thing, of course, is what do you call this thing? And it was quite a process that got us to Mushroom FM. We actually told the story of this on a documentary series that we produced for Mushroom FM's first birthday. It was very legendary on Twitter that I absolutely hate mushrooms. And Caroline and I would go on about that back and forth quite a bit. And Jonathan writes back and says, oh, you should you should start your own station and call it Mushroom FM. And I, I said, no, it's not going to happen. You know, it's just. Isn't, isn't going to happen. Well, a couple days later, pretty sure it was just a couple days later, I get an, a direct message from Jonathan while I'm at work, and he says, well, I'd like to start a radio station. Can I use the name Mushroom FM? And I said, well, absolutely. You know, you came up with it in the first place, so go for it. I suddenly had this sort of word association thing. Huh, what does the station that I never expected to create want to be? It wants to be fun. Fun to broadcast on, fun to listen to, fun, fun guys, mushrooms. Okay, Mushroom FM, home of the fun guys. And so that's how we came up with the name. You were sort of walking back in to something you got paid for doing as like your nights and weekends gig, basically running running a little radio station again. Yeah. <laughs> with With quite a few people. Yeah, and I wish I'd taken a little bit more time to think it through, to be honest. Mushroom FM was kind of like a really slick version in those days anyway of ACB Radio Interactive where you could come and do 
maybe you know one or two shows a week and um we were much more selective and became increasingly so over time actually but it was still that model of blind people getting on the air and doing whatever they wanted with the time that they were allocated and i suppose still back in 2010 there was a bit of novelty around that still but it did mean that we got into the same traps that ACB Radio Interactive had, which was, you know, you get quite a large team, each putting in a set number of hours every week. Uh, the larger the team gets, the more diverse it is and the more difficult it is to manage. So you have all those challenges. But that said, what we produced then was of a caliber that had not been seen before in that sort of class of internet, the, the blindness internet radio stations. You spent a lot of money on jingles, even though they were d- discounted. I'm sure you spent <laughs> quite a bit of your uh, well-earned income getting those jingles done. Yeah, and there's a story about that. I guess I always think that as long as you're playing for your team, you are absolutely loyal to your team. You know what they say about people who assume it makes an ass of you and me. And so I, I figured that everybody felt that way. And then I noticed that uh, some of the people that we had recruited on Mushroom FM were broadcasting elsewhere on other internet radio stations. And you know, while I have sort of acquiesced at different times and syndicated the Mosin Explosion, I've never really seen the point of syndication of um, a show like that on internet radio because it's not like they're distinct geographical markets. It's duplication, it seems to me, and potential fragmentation. Quite soon after Mushroom FM started, sort of ra- started raising this with people and saying, you know, I think if you're going to play for the Mushroom FM team you should play just for the Mushroom FM team because one of the problems with broadcasting on multiple stations or or doing shows on different stations is that your colleague at one time is a competitor when you're on that other station doing a completely different show. I mean, how is your colleague on Mushroom FM supposed to feel when all of a sudden you're on another radio station at the same time as this person on Mushroom FM seeking the same listeners because largely all these stations are after the same audience and I just felt that that was a recipe for disaster so I implemented something that I should have implemented before the thing started which was a policy that said if you broadcast on Mushroom FM you only broadcast on Mushroom FM and over the years that's been misinterpreted and all sorts of nonsense has been said about it and and that I've said that you can't listen to another internet radio station I mean goodness me we're not the police we can't control what you listen to but the broadcasting thing is a different thing when you lend your name to an internet radio station you become a part of that brand and I don't think it's right to dilute it by splitting your brand over multiple stations at different times. So that's caused a major social media uh, soup storm. And uh, the vitriol from certain circles was just absolutely disgusting. Um, some, you know, you, you can disagree with a policy all you like, but um, I was under a lot of very bitter personal attack and, uh, and sustained personal attack. And uh, in the end, when we sort of started to see that through, I wanted to thank the staff who had decided to stay with Mushroom FM and saw the logic of the cohesion that I was trying to build. And so 
part of me was thinking, well, we're going to show these people. You know, we, we've got a slightly smaller team because there were people who walked out and made a big noise about it and some who walked out and didn't make a big noise about it too. So thank you to those. Uh, and I thought, well, the one way I can show everybody and the team is to really take Mushroom FM to the next level. And one thing that had never been done before in these stations was to go to a professional jingle company and um, get jingles done. So I went to Jam and they made a, a series of Mushroom FM jingles and it just makes the station sound so classy. On the web at mushroomfm.com mushroomfm You mentioned the negative side of social media where you could have a firestorm about things going south. Uh, how did you harness it uh, to promote and keep Mushroom FM vibrant? Even when it was clear that Mushroom FM was emerging, Quite, I mean, we built Mushroom FM in seven crazy days. I remember uh, we did a, an opening documentary introducing Mushroom FM and its team, and I was trying to listen back to what I thought was the final version uh, the night before we went on air and falling asleep with my head on the mixer. It's Sunday, April 25th, 1800 UTC, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. in the UK. Monday, April 26th, 6 a.m. in New Zealand, 4 a.m. in Eastern Australia, 2 a.m. in Manila. Wherever you are in the world, you are united by Mushroom FM. Welcome to an exciting new sound in cyberspace. We've been emailed about, tweeted about, blogged about, talked about, and speculated about and now it's time for us to unveil the world's newest internet radio station, Mushroom FM, the home of the fun guys. My name's Jonathan Mosen, station manager at Mushroom FM, and it's my pleasure to welcome you. Thank you for giving us a try today when there's so much internet radio out there. Having had the privilege of your time today, we hope to earn more of it by introducing you to our kind of radio. Our hope is that you'll share our vision for what makes radio worth hearing and that over the years to come, you'll come back for more and more and more and you'll bring some friends along with you too. We know you're just getting to know Mushroom FM, but we'd like to ask you a favour. Why not share the excitement of a new internet radio station with your friends? Log into Twitter, Facebook and other social networks. Tell them there's an exciting new sound at www.mushroomfm.com. We appreciate it. Well, we've certainly got many of you tweeting about mushrooms over the last week and calling into our comment line. Mushrooms, mushrooms. I really hate those filthy mushrooms. If mushrooms are a part of any dish, I'll throw that crap away and eat more chocolate fish. Mushrooms, mushrooms. The worst thing in life is mushrooms. They're really rotten, like I've said before. I'll gladly say it once more. Mushrooms. Everybody needs mushrooms. With a little bit of bacon. And a little bit of egg, tomato, and a little bit of sausage. That's when good mushrooms become. 
tea mushrooms. Mushrooms are awesome. They're evil. They're slimy. They don't smell good, and a lot of them are poisonous. I have nothing positive to say about a mushroom because there is nothing positive to say about a mushroom whatsoever. Anybody who thinks otherwise is seriously delusioning themselves. I like mushrooms raw and fried. You other lovers can't deny I like them stuffed and sliced, sautéed twice as nice. I like them in my migas, mixed corn tortillas, portobello, nice and mellow. Come on, y'all, and meet that fellow. In my soup and on my burger, on my pizza, it's a merger. So spice them up and lay them out, because this boy got to shout, Ronnie likes shrooms. Yeah, Ronnie likes shrooms. I don't like rain or snow or hail or Moby Dick the Great White Whale, but ooh, I love mushrooms. I don't like liver, don't like squid. For cried eggs, I wouldn't pay a quid, but ooh, I love mushrooms. Mushrooms, mushrooms, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mushrooms, mushrooms, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mushrooms I really do hate. They certainly are second rate. Well, I'll let you into a little secret. We don't really mind if you never eat another mushroom again. If anyone asks you what you think of mushrooms, just tell them your favorite mushroom is www.mushroomfm.com. Even during that week, when I could see that we were building a station and when I decided it was going to be called Mushroom FM, I suddenly had this really cool idea. I asked all the presenters who were coming on to Mushroom FM, the fun guys, to tweet this link to a stream which basically said we are doing a study uh, an opinion piece to find out what you think of mushrooms if you want to participate in it call this number and the number led to a voicemail where people could record their opinions about mushrooms and then that recording would get emailed to me and I would add it to this loop that was playing on what would become the mushroom fm stream but we at that stage we didn't even announce that it was mushroom fm We just had this crazy opinion stream about mushrooms and it captured the imagination and attention of people on social media because people were like, what the hell is is Mosin's lost at this time? Why are we doing this? But people would call and they'd leave their opinions about mushrooms and people would make up songs about mushrooms. And over the course of that preliminary week, the loop got longer and longer. And then we finally announced Mushroom FM and we had a big audience when we launched And we kept that up. We would do these things for Mushroom FM's birthday, for example. One year we did um, a cruise where it was like a virtual cruise and everybody was assigned a virtual cabin number and we'd use the Mushroom FM hashtag to group all the tweets together and we'd have games and competitions and giveaways and things. And we would just find these unique ways to engage with people via social media. And because it was so new, it really did work. So you come up with these campaigns, there's a good chance that they could go south. How do you uh, have the fortitude to sort of put put things out there uh, knowing that they could go either way? Well, what's the worst that can happen, you know? Embarrassment, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I would far rather try and fail a few times than sort of live to a ripe old age and wonder what would have happened had I done this. 
How long did Mushroom FM 1.0 It's funny how people have coined that phrase. So we started on the 25th of April 2010, and we went off the air on the 30th of November 2013. Why? Again, it comes back to this management issue I was talking about when you have a large group of people in disparate locations around the world with different temperaments, and it's it's hard to manage a large team like that. In the second half of 2013, my life was being transformed professionally and personally, and it was actually really hard for me to keep Mushroom FM going, and I'm very fortunate that a number of people donated at that stage to keep Mushroom FM going because I was leasing my computer at that stage. Uh, it's It's a good thing to do when you're, running a business to lease your computer because you can update to another one pretty quickly. But when the money runs out, as it did then, I wondered sometimes whether I would even have a computer this time next week. And a lot was going on. And at a personal level, I had chosen to end my second marriage. The weekend that we did Mushroom FM's third birthday celebration, which was this elaborate murder mystery weekend, the sort of virtual weekend, I was dealing with the loss of my current job, which I know we will talk about later, my decision to end the marriage, acquainting my children with that decision, and still trying to put on a great show. And I think we did. We all did a great team effort on that murder mystery weekend. So there was enormous pressure on me personally, and I'm only human. There's only so much one person can take. New Zealanders are a pretty stoic kind of people, I think. And although I sometimes do wear my heart on my sleeve, I'm generally pretty stoic. I don't often go public with my woes. And few people, certainly outside the immediate Mushroom FM circle, knew that all of this was going down while we were all having a very jolly time doing the murder mystery weekend and beyond. So it was a really challenging personal time on all fronts. And in tandem with this, I was really observing a kind of an emergence of cliques within Mushroom FM. People who had a bit more time and perhaps were in the same time zone would sort of get on Twitter in the evenings, have a few glasses of mineral water or something, and tweet up a storm to one another. And you definitely could see factions emerging. One of the most wonderful people I've ever worked with on anything is uh, Gordon Luke, who by that stage was the operations manager at Mushroom FM. Amazing emotional intelligence, and he's just super, super cool. And uh, Gordon would try to manage a lot of these situations, but even poor Gordon, who was spending hours trying to manage all the the, the cliques and the, the sort of dissatisfaction and, and the kind of little snarky things that were going on, was getting tired. It came to a head because I had introduced a policy about a year and a half before, roughly, I think, where we used a Mushroom FM hashtag. And anybody who knows anything about social media knows that that is the responsible way to handle it for two reasons. First, if you are generating a lot of traffic on the same subject, grouping into a hashtag is courtesy because it allows somebody who's not interested 
And, you know, there are some people who, for example, wanted to follow me, but didn't like Mushroom FM or weren't interested in Mushroom FM. It allows you then to filter out the hashtag. So people can still see tweets that are relevant, but anything that has the hashtag Mushroom FM in it, they don't see. That's responsible. The other thing is that listeners who aren't following each other, but would like to carry on a kind of a social media conversation, and there was a lot of it back then, could also track that hashtag and participate without people following each other. What we found was that the use of the hashtag was a bit haphazard. Some people would do it consistently. Some people would not do it at all. And one fateful day, I got an email from a broadcaster who said it's it's not really fair that some of us are adhering to the policy and some people don't bother. So I raised this with people and I said, listen, we, we really should be using the hashtag. I'd also set up Mosaic Consulting then and written a book on Twitter. And it looks kind of stupid when the authority on Twitter, as it were, uh, who'd written this book, is not even running a radio station that adheres to best social media practice. And there was a bit of a backlash. Some of it got really snarky. And in the end, just the pressure of everything in my life made me decide I'd had enough. So I resigned. I had every intention of handing over to Gordon so that Mushroom FM could continue in my absence. Gordon had also had enough of the backbiting and declined my kind invitation for him to take over the ownership of Mushroom FM. I looked at a couple of other internal candidates who I felt were constructive participants who could unite the team. But in the end, I felt that the most likely outcome was that there would be a significant spin-off that would form from Mushroom FM if I put certain people in charge. And I have in my life been deeply inspired by the Beatles. And what I learned from the Beatles is sometimes it's a good idea to go out when you're on top. And so not being able to find anybody who I felt could unify the factions and maintain the standards that I would feel happy with and in handing over, we had to shut it down. I don't regret any of that. But the one thing I do really regret is that I did not announce the closure. Because the argument was, well, you've left now. You've, you've told the team you're resigning. So I did not come back and announce the closure. And that was a mistake. As the, the founder of it, the person who had been there until a few days previously, I should have got on that staff meeting and explained why we were closing and why we were doing what we're doing. We also got a lot of public criticism for just shutting it down. I stand by that absolutely because given the factions that were bubbling away, if we'd have said Mushroom FM is closing down this time next Saturday, that would have given people a week to grandstand. And I wanted Mushroom FM to close on a high professionally, and I'm glad that we did that. But I did feel somewhat forced into it and felt that there was some unfinished business that I might come back to one day. And indeed you did. (laughs) In 2015. Yeah, in 2015. Mushroom FM um, 2.0, I guess, is uh, my dream internet radio station. We have a a really dedicated team. Uh, We are consistent about what we produce. We play music from the 50s through the 80s. Our team voice tracks a lot of the weekday content, but that means that just like in any radio station, you can tune in at the same time every weekday and hear the same person on and, and bond with that person every day. So we've kind of ditched that whole, you know, if you want to participate, have a go kind of model. And we're now extremely selective 
about who gets on Mushroom FM, not just for what they can do on the air, but how they conduct themselves is equally important. Because when you're a volunteer, if you don't enjoy this, why the heck are you doing it? I love the team that we have. And um, Mushroom FM 2.0 kind of emerged by accident too. And then I was running this thing called the Mosin Channel, where I would do the Mosin Explosion show and run a lot of archive material. I'm kind of, I'm a historian, uh, an archivist, so I have a lot of old material. So there was a lot of reruns that I could do. But then gradually, I got approached by a few stray waifs who were kind of looking for a home. And it was like, oh, my God, this is repeating all over again. People coming to me and, and saying, um, can I broadcast on your stream? So in the end, we made the decision to bring Mushroom FM back, very much cognizant of some of the lessons learned from the past. And it's fantastic. It's sustainable. And it's a really quality product. In terms of your relaxing and finding an outlet just because is radio it yes i realized that it's a part of me and i had to confront this very recently the blindside podcast which i've been doing in recent years gets really good numbers i mean many many thousands of people listen to every episode when i accepted the role to be chief executive of Workbridge, I knew that I was making some kind of exit, really, from the life I've led over the last 20 years or so, where I've been in very prominent international blindness roles and kind of public property in the blindness space for good and ill. <laughs> so I had to think about, if I want to keep my toe in the water, how do I do that? Logic tells me that the best way to do that is to try and keep producing the Blindside podcast because that's the way that I can reach the most people. But my heart tells me very clearly that I am about to enter a really responsible job. Being CEO of an organization the size, 22 offices around the country, there will be challenging times and that the best way I can unwind and relax and just take a break from that intensity is to keep the Mosin explosion going. So I'm, I have to say I'm doing it for me. It's the wonderful Mosin explosion. Will the Blindside podcast continue, or is it unclear? I'm hoping to try and find a way to synthesize the two. I haven't quite got it all worked out yet. My first priority is to the board of the organization paying me a chief executive salary. Um, they, they deserve the best of me, and I just want to make sure I'm giving them that before I make any other commitments. You've done radio long enough that I'm wondering if there have been some really memorable interviews that you've done? One or two things that jump out for one reason or another. Some really good and some just humiliating, or one just humiliating. I do remember I was emailing back and forth with people about ACB Radio, and I got an email one day from Ronnie Millsap, and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. I was a bit of a Ronnie Millsap fan, and still am. And so I wrote back to answer whatever his question is. And then I thought, well, why the heck not? I said, listen, 
there'd be a lot of the ACB radio audience who would just be thrilled to bits to hear your story and get a chance to call in and say hi to you. If ever you find yourself available, let's do a blind line. And then the next day, I think it was, it was very quick, the phone rang and I picked up and there was Ronnie on the other end and he was very chatty and I put the phone down and we'd set a time for blind line. And Amanda said, who was that on the phone? I said, it was Ronnie Millsap. And she said, yeah, right, and I'm the Queen of England. <laughs> but it was. And we had a great chat. And uh, he also did some stuff when I was doing a presentation at the convention for ACB's 40th birthday. So the Ronnie Millsap one really stood out for me. Actually, in more recent times, one that I really enjoyed doing a lot was interviewing David Blunkett, who has been a bit of a hero of mine. David Blunkett is totally blind, has been since birth, and he became Home Secretary in Britain at the time of 9-11, actually. So that's a really big deal. That's an extremely serious senior role in the British parliamentary system. And I remember when Amanda and I did our first big overseas trip and we went to the UK in 1988 and 89 and I was just this young guy with a lot more nerve I guess and I just called parliament up and I said I want to be an MP one day and I hear you've got one who's blind and they put me through to David Blunkett's office and he kindly spent about half an hour with me asking probably pretty innocuous silly questions but then, latterly on the blind side, I got back in touch when he'd become Lord Blunkett by that stage and interviewed him for about an hour. And that was very special to me personally because he had been such an inspiration. So those are two that stand out. The worst interview I have ever done was on commercial radio when I was still pretty young with David Longy. Now, David Longy was our prime minister in New Zealand from 1984 to 1989, and one of his big signature issues was nuclear-free. New Zealand is, by law, a nuclear-free country, and that applies to nuclear arms and nuclear power. Something came up in the news, and I got David Longy on the radio and interviewed him about this issue, and he just completely sliced me and diced me, and it was just a terrible, terrible interview. At the end of it, he kind of said, well, that was really great and was most buoyant about it, but it was a terrible interview. Could you have done anything to prepare to have made it better? No, I think the safest thing to do would have been not to have done it. He actually went to the Oxford Union in 1985 and debated Jerry Forwell on the subject of uh, nuclear disarmament. And just completely made mincemeat of him as well. And I should have known better than to take that issue on with him. But it was an experience. It was it was a learning thing. And I suspect it's one of those things where it may have felt worse to me than it sounded. I sure as heck hope so. It's one of those things. I, I don't mind air checking myself and listening to see how I can do better in future. But I could never listen to that one. <laughs> I've never heard it. What do you do when something goes off the rails, be it an interview or something else in your life? How do you respond to that emotionally? I suppose it depends on what it is. 
I don't know how to answer that question, really, because it's such a broad question. Uh, so, 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 so I can clarify a little bit. Do you end up stewing about it, or is are you sort of able to think about it, analyze it, mostly put it behind you? I'm much better at putting things behind me now than I was, thanks to all my reading of Eckhart Tolle and meditation and things. If I feel that it's in any way within my grasp to change a situation that I'm not happy with, then I do tend to get very focused on changing that situation. I'm not one of these people who thinks that I'm too small and insignificant to change things. And that's not to say that I consider myself particularly large or significant in the wider scheme of things. I just think that a lot of people these days underestimate their ability to make change. So if I can make practical change, then I do. If I can't, I think I am able to, you know, let things go and move on and realize, you know, you've you've reached the end of the line with this. The one exception to that is when I perceive that some sort of injustice has been handed out either to me or to people I care about. I do have a, a very strong sense of justice. And if I perceive injustice, that really rankles with me. I've been analyzing your craft a little bit, listening to uh, the Mosin explosion pretty carefully for a couple of weeks. One of the things that jumps out at me is that you can take a relatively insignificant story, something that I would pretty much condense down to about four sentences, and turn it into a whole bit, elaborating on details, really making it much more of not really a real-time situation as you explain it, but much much closer to that than someone summarizing. Have you always done that, or is that something you sort of worked at? It is something I've worked at, but I think I've also always done it. It's something I've deliberately developed over the years. I read some really interesting material from a woman named Valerie Geller. I don't know if you've come across her, but she advises quite a lot of experienced broadcasters, and she comes in as a radio consultant for big American radio outlets. And she's got a book, actually, that you can get on audible.com. I forget its name, but it's quite large. And she talks about this idea of people not being able to resist overhearing a really good story, and that you can present a series of, of pretty straightforward facts, and they won't grab somebody's attention. But if you engage those listeners in a way that makes them feel like they're listening to a story that they can relate to, then all of a sudden people prick up their ears. And it comes back to what we talked about a long time ago in this conversation, Glenn, when I took that advice to heart in my teens from Paul Holmes, who said, if there's one thing that people can't help getting into, it's overhearing an intimate conversation. And so when I am doing the Mosin Explosion, and I might be relating something that's happened to me or Bonnie or one of the kids or whatever, I'm trying to imagine myself sitting at a dinner table, maybe having a meal with the Mosin Explosion listener, singular, that I'm talking to, and uh, being a bit of a raconteur and just sort of, you know, it, it's my turn to tell a bit of a story to keep the dinner party conversation going. 
but you still need to figure out how to explode it, right? If you go to the Apple store to look for an iPad, right, I would condense that to, I went to the Apple store to decide if I wanted to buy the new iPad. (laughs) And I looked at a couple of them and I thought about the price and I thought about the features and said, no way. (laughs) Yet you turn that into a 10-minute story. Well, you could argue that I'm a waffler, of course. No, but it, I mean it, it was it was interesting. I think it is that you 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 keep what would otherwise be insignificant details enough in your mind that you can actually spin the yarn. Sometimes I do write things down. So I have a file. See tricks of the trade coming up here. I have a file and if something happens to me during the week and I think I'd like to tell Mosin Explosion listeners about this, then I will just make a couple of notes because particularly with live radio, and there's not a lot of that about anymore, but with the live Mosin Explosion, it's pretty high pressure, especially when you've got no production assistance. And I certainly don't have that. So I'm in here, you know, lining up what track makes sense to play next. And while a track is playing, I've got emails, I've got tweets, I've got voicemail coming in that I try and pre-screen in case somebody says something like soup on the radio. And then I got to put it all together. So in those high pressure situations, the best way to prepare is sometimes just to make a few quick notes about what might I say when I open the mic and I'm feeling a bit flustered and I don't know what to say. So then I can consult the notes. Yeah. Are there some things you'd like to be remembered for in terms of your broadcasting? You know, I remember Howard Stern asked Billy Joel about his most underrated song and and he picked one, which was actually And So It Goes, which is interesting because it's one of my favorite Billy Joel songs. So it's interesting that he thinks people underrate it. One of the things I'm most proud of in my internet broadcasting and broadcasting career generally is a thing that not many people talk about. And that was in 2003, while I was still with ACB Radio, I set up a temporary independent project called the Broadcast for Peace to protest the start of the second Gulf War. It was something I felt very strongly about. Clearly, no weapons of mass destruction had been found. The American public had been badly hoodwinked by big oil interests in the Bush-Cheney government, where Cheney himself was a big oil interest, to somehow believe that there was some connection between 9-11 and Iraq, and there was none. It was an oil grab, and it was hideous, and it was just an egregious breach of international law, and it made me very angry. And again, you see, it comes back to the sense of, you know, can can a little person make a difference? And I thought, if I can do this protest radio station and even educate one person, well, that's a little bit of progress. And so I put this uh, radio station together. We got a lot of uh, activists, some ACB radio people and people that I knew elsewhere participated. Obviously, some did not. Uh, But we ran this for, I think it might have been about 24 or 48 hours of pretty high quality programming. And word got out through circles well beyond blindness that we were doing this. I remember talking to a member of parliament here in New Zealand on the air who was opposed to the Iraq war. Over 30 hours from six countries. Internet marathon for peace. This is broadcast for peace. 
Org. Keith, thanks very much for making yourself available. I guess that some of our listeners who are tuned into this are strongly anti the present war and they're tuning in to hear people of like mind. Mm. And others will be listening with a lot of scepticism and incredulity. So I guess, could we start with the basic question and the broad question and talk about why this war is so unjust and why you're opposing it? Yes, well, the, the reasons have been advanced for it are, are basically false. Uh, the idea that it's about uh, ridding the w- world or of weapons of mass destruction is wrong because uh, the inspectors haven't. Uh, it's, it's clear that Iraq once did have weapons of mass destruction. Uh, no, none have been discovered by the inspectors. It's just a little debate over whether they did get rid of the VX gas and the uh, anthrax and how they did it and when all the rest of it. So that. It, obviously, that is just sort of tidying up work that could have been done through the continuation of the inspectors. And it was a really big deal. And of course, what happened at that time was you got conservatives writing to ACB protesting about me doing this and saying, you know, what a what a bad uh, image it was for ACB Radio's director to be exercising their what would it in the US be their constitutional right to freedom of expression simply because the, the far right disagreed with me. You know, freedom of speech is fine until the right disagrees with you and then suddenly it isn't. So I held the line on that. And interestingly enough, a lot of people when I left ACB Radio, because that would have been in March of 2003 and I left ACB Radio in July. And some people, you know, they they love conspiracy theories and when there are facts that don't agree with them, they just interview their own word processes. And so a lot of people thought at the time, oh, it's because of this broadcast for peace, you know, they got rid of him, which is absolutely not the case. I think actually that uh, from memory, Chris Gray was uh, of a similar view to me on that particular subject. But I'm proud to have stood up and did something about that. And history has, of course, proven me absolutely right about that awful quagmire that Bush and Cheney got America into. And I stood up against some pretty stiff opposition and did what I thought was right. It's interesting. Uh, what this is partially bringing mind to me is what is someone's obligation as an employee on behalf of the organization? And to what degree, when you're employed, are you ever prevented from saying slash doing things? It is a very important question because fundamentally one does have a right to exercise freedom of expression, certainly in the US Constitution and here in New Zealand under our Bill of Rights Act, that right is protected. Now, if I had used ACB radio itself to run a broadcast for peace stream, I can completely understand why some people would have been upset about that, because it may have been implied that the American Council of the Blind, who run ACB radio, had a view on that war. And that's why I chose to completely separate it. It wasn't on any ACB radio server. It was completely separate. But it is a difficult thing. You know, I know that some employers monitor the social media of employees, for example. And if behavior is inappropriate and they feel that it might be bringing their organization into disrepute, then there can be disciplinary consequences of that. But I think that's different from exercising 
one's legitimate right to freedom of political opinion. We can only hope that people understand the difference, that <laughs> you have a personal life in addition to your work life. Yes, and, and I'm sure that you will remember just how difficult that time was in terms of uh, right-wing interests trying to shut down any discussion about this. I mean, we all know what happened to the Dixie Chicks, for example. Uh, so th there was a lot of it about people made erroneous associations between 9-11 and Iraq. And I'm, I'm certainly not in any way suggesting that Saddam Hussein wasn't a horrible, brutal dictator and the world's better off without him. But if you use that as the criteria for breaching international law, there are lots of other places to go as well. So we've gotten to 2003. I do want to talk about your role as product manager and other things in the assistive technology business. But I'm thinking we should probably bring everyone up to date in terms of where you were in terms of technology. When last we talked about it, I think we got as far as you really loving Keysoft and using Keysoft a lot. But a lot probably happened between uh, then and 2003. A lot happened. And I don't know what it was with me and or what it is with me in technology, but I seemed to just have an aptitude for it and got a reputation quite quickly, certainly in New Zealand. And then thanks to things like FidoNet and CompuServe and the internet, uh, later internationally. So I was um, using the keynote very early on, as soon as it was developed, pretty much. Many people don't know unless they now play my blind technology trivia game that I've written for Amazon Alexa, where this question comes up, that originally Pulse Data was actually called Wormold International Sensory Aids Limited. And that's where <laughs> the first keynote came from. And because they were based in Christchurch, and I was considered this young whiz kid, I got to know Russell Smith, who founded Wormold International Sensory Aids very early. He was sort of fond of me. I didn't realized quite how much uh, until after he died and um, somebody sort of took me to one side and said, do you realize that Russell kind of thought of you as a son? And I said, I, I, I didn't realize that. It was kind of sad in the way that I didn't realize that. But the result of all this was that I would regularly beta test code. I, you know, I'd get a floppy disk in the mail. I'll tell you a story that you will appreciate. I was playing with a new version of Keysoft and there was a button on the original Keynote that let you specify what keyboard echo you got. There was a dedicated button on this thing above the keyboard. So I'd push this key and it would say, keyboard voice, currently spell. And when it was set to spell, that meant that it would echo every letter and you could choose words or off, I think. So spell, words or off. If you wanted to set it to off, you would press F, and if you wanted to set it to Word, you would press W. And I called Jonathan Sharp, who has made a huge contribution to this industry, one of the most gifted software developers we have ever had. And I called him, and I, I was very excited, coming in after school, where I discovered this at school, and I said, Jonathan, listen to this. I pushed the button, and it said, keyboard voice, currently spell. And then I pressed the key to turn, to turn it to off, and it said F off. 
because it echoed the F for off and then it switched it off. So poor Jonathan, he was mortified. Next thing I get a floppy disk in the mail the very next day with a software update that fixed it. (laughs) Those are the kinds of things people love. Those are the features they want to show off at parties. We loved it at school, I tell you. Yeah. Uh, So Keynote Gold and, and, and all those products, they were a big part of my life. But eventually I did upgrade from my Apple IIe to a PC. The the Apple IIe was great. I, I still remember all those games that we used to run with the Echo and you know um, Lemonade Stand and Oregon Trail and oh gosh, there were you could run integer basic and actually get multi-part harmony going with instrumental music. It was pretty neat. But then when I went to university I got an IBM XT and I think the first one had a twenty megabyte hard drive, which was pretty impressive then. That was cutting edge. Now, did Qsoft run on that or not? Eventually, but not at first. So at first, I was using Softvert, and you'd push, I think, Control-B, and it would say bottom of text. This was with DOS, and uh, that was a TSI product, wasn't it, Softvert, I think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was my first screen reader. Eventually, Pulse Data, as it had then become, did get in to the PC side, and they had a screen reader called Master Touch that was actually quite innovative for its time. Because one of the things that was really significant in those days was it was easier when DOS programs used BIOS instead of direct screen writes. If uh, software wrote to BIOS, then things would talk automatically, but with direct screen writes, they would not, and you'd have to go into your screen reader's review mode. And somehow Master Touch rendered this distinction unnecessary. And it had a little touch tablet that you could optionally get for it. So you could explore the screen by touch. It was pretty innovative. Yeah, for especially for the time. Yeah. I used to do a range of screen readers. I think by that stage I had got onto Blink Link. So I would download demo versions of all the software that was coming out. I think I downloaded a demo of, of Jaws for DOS. And ultimately, I think in 19, maybe 89, I started using a, a screen reader called Flipper. And that was developed by a guy called Steve Smith, who worked at a university in California. I think he may have been a professor. And he wrote that for his wife, who was blind. It was such a different time because there are a lot of these mom and pop companies making screen readers. And you could just call up and talk to the people who were writing the software. But I remember with Flipper, the trick was that you had to call at just the right time in the morning before Steve went to his day job, if you got a new computer and you wanted to unlock it because it was sort of had this machine locking system where he'd have to give you a key to unlock it for a new computer. And uh, so I remember getting up at about three or four in the morning my time to be able to call him at home and get him before he went to work so I could get it unlocked for my new <laughs> laptop. So there was a lot of stuff going on like that and, and 2,400 board modems. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've come a long way, baby. When Jonathan and I continue our conversation, we'll talk about assistive technology, his use of it over the years, and his work as product manager at Pulse Data International, and why he ultimately chose to go work for Freedom Scientific. Those things and more upcoming on Episode 8 of In the Arena, the Jonathan Mosen Story. I'm Glenn Gordon. Thanks for listening.